Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Want to get a little more from every sip? Smartwater Alkaline doesn't just taste crisp and pure. It's loaded with everything you need to perform at your best, whether you're running marathons or boardroom meetings. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smartwater Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com. Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Want to get a little more from every sip? Smartwater Alkaline doesn't just taste crisp and pure. It's loaded with everything you need to perform at your best, whether you're running marathons or boardroom meetings. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smartwater Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com. Before we get started, I want to tell you quickly about an organization called Every Library. It's a nonprofit, and what Every Library is focused on is protecting and supporting local libraries across America. Uh, they're doing fantastic work. If you're listening to this show, I'm sure that you like reading things. Seems like a fair assumption. And a guarantee is that if you like reading things, you have had at some point in your life a meaningful, valuable experience with a library. These people at everylibrary.org are trying to make sure that kids across the country can keep having those experiences. Go help them out. You can sign a pledge. You can give them a couple bucks at action.everylibrary.org. Here's the show. Hello. Welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hey, Max. It's been a great summer for this podcast. I just want to say that. Really enjoyed uh, hanging out in this hot sweaty room with you guys you make it seem like we're in here all the time yeah it's just that's all my all my memories are, are from the summer max put this beautiful beach wrap on our uh, on our table here it's actually jenna weiss berman oh jenna weiss berman put this on here wow. we really brought this studio to life <laughs> well next year our big upgrade 2017 if we get enough sponsors we can get like figure out how to get air conditioning in here <laughs> that's my that's my goal for 2017 in the meantime max this is a pretty exciting show yeah david remnick Editor of the New Yorker on the Long Form Podcast this week. I did not know he would do the show. If I if I if I had had to gamble, I would have it would gamble that he'd turn you down. <laughs> he was very game, man. He was uh, he was great. He came, sat down. We talked for a really long time. He was like uh, he was very present. He was like very present and thoughtful, which I find impressive for someone who clearly has like <laughs> obviously much bigger things to deal with. Uh, it was cool. He actually sat down. It starts, I think, with he's like uh, he was holding sketches for this week's magazine for the cover of the magazine and deciding like what to do. He had three options. Did you help him choose? Yeah, it was like he was like, I'm going to go with this one. I was like, it's a terrible idea. Yeah, it's a great cover this week, by the way. <laughs> Classic Remnick Bungle, man. I am always uh, fascinated by people who like there's people out there who achieve two, three, four times as much as I do in life. But then there's people who are in that like Obama level where they're like 10 to 50 X my productivity. <laughs> and those kind of people I always want to hear about. Like I want to hear weird minutia of, of how they live their life. We talked about productivity. Also, a thing I didn't know before this, he got that job when he was 39. Wow. He, he told the whole story of getting the job. He's been editing the magazine for 18 years. I think Evan's older than that. True fact. <laughs> Thanks, Aaron. <laughs> just, just, dude, I just like to give a little background for people listening to the show. He had never edited anything before, and his first editing job was running The New Yorker. Hey, is uh, MailChimp uh, sponsoring this week? Shocking turn of events, my friend. MailChimp is supporting the show this week. Uh, for those who have never listened to the show before, MailChimp is the best way to send email for your business or your project or what have you. Uh, they have all the greatest tools. They You don't even start paying until your list reaches a certain amount. So, hey, thanks, MailChimp. And now here's Max with David Rednick. Okay, all we're right. off to the races. Okay, you ready? How long do you have? I'm fine. I'm here. Until it gets boring for you. Well, that's not going to happen. Now. How do you do that where you just say, like, I'm here? Like, you must I, have a million things swimming in your head right now. I have some things. What's, what's swimming in your <laughs> some head? Some cover sketches here. Yeah, you're sitting there with the cover. What is it? Uh, I haven't decided yet, and these are only a, a few of the sketches. And, you know, <laughs> it's a funny thing, the cover of The New Yorker, because there's always news... But if you're always reacting to what's going on in the world, then you've kind of become a different magazine. You never give yourself and the cover a chance to breathe, show New York, show something beautiful. 
because God knows there's enough ugliness in the world, isn't there? And so I don't know. This week we're, we're, we had a double issue, and maybe last week I would have had something from Dallas. We've gotten very good at doing things quickly. I've now got some sketches that are about the police, about race, um, and then there's a cover that's just a beautiful scene from New York. And so urgency is always there, but if you're, if you're going to put it urgency on the cover all the time, I fear the identity of the magazine will, will become the higher Newsweek or something. It'll mm-hmm. be like The Economist, but a little funny. Do you have like your like um, topical cover and your evergreen cover every week? Are you making that choice every week? We get an enormous number of sketches. We also have an enormous number of finished, beautiful, or potentially beautiful covers that are could just run any time. Mm-hmm. Seasonal, you know, funny, something like that. Like you've got one sitting in the hopper for like autumn 2018 if you need it. it it's not dated. But beginning with Tina Brown in, in 1992, the New Yorker started using the option, at least, of having timely covers. And that went on. For, Tina was editor for six years. And and I've, <laughs> I've now been the editor three times longer than that, 18 years as of this summer. And I've probably used that option with even more frequency. Mm-hmm. And those have been some real moments for your magazine. They have. And they can be comic, too. They can have... So when the Supreme Court came through on marriage equality, on gay marriage, I remember getting very quickly a cover image. I guess it was Bert and Ernie. You're you're, you're watching over Bert and Ernie's shoulder as they're watching the Supreme Court, and and they have their arms around each other. And my first instinct was that we're trivializing a hugely important, moving civil rights breakthrough. But as I do very often, I took the sketch around to people who just are innately different in some way. The reaction was so positive that I realized I was, I was wrong, and we ran, and it was one of the most popular things we've ever done. How are you going to make this decision? We got these ones right in front of you. Do you know what you're going to do? I don't yet, because it's, it's, it's early... You know, it's, it's only Wednesday. <laughs> it's only Wednesday, and uh, technology, and the speed of the artists, some of these artists, is, is such that you can make the decision a little later. And I've, I, But by the end of the day, I would think. We should say, like, those are just sketches. You don't have final proofs in front of you. No, I don't. These are a sketch from Chris Ware, a sketch from Barry Blitt, and there are others to come. And then, you and then there's a kind of comic phenomenon that's been happening this past week that by the, probably by the time you post this, nobody will even remember, which is the Pokemon... <laughs> Resurgence. Um, I think people are going to remember Pokemon. You think? I think it's here to stay for a little bit, yeah. Like Angry Birds times 10? They added $7 billion it's of market value. It's, un- <laughs> it's, not, it's, not, it's not like going away tomorrow. It's unbelievable. We live in a crazy world, but it's not that crazy. I want to ask you about keeping things in your head. Mm-hmm. So right now, you're sitting down to do this interview. You're telling me you're here. You also have these sketches in front of you. I assume there are a thousand other things. Mm-hmm that are swimming up there and that you need to decide on. And I'm really interested in how you do that. First of all, it's important to say I'm not alone. This is not the imperial editorship. Um, My job in the end is largely yes and no. Yes, this, not that. It's not just me in a room. It's, It's a lot of people at various levels and a lot of really young, smart people wandering out in the office that I habitually call on. And one of the things I like to do is at least a few times a day walk around the office and drop in at random, seemingly at random. We have all kinds of people in their 20s doing various jobs, whether they're checkers or assistants or writers uh, or young editors. And I want to know what they think because their experience of life where they live, who they talk to, what they're doing at night is different than a 57-year-old white guy of a certain experience. And if I don't do that, I'm out of my mind. Do you think they shoot you straight? I like to think that I know whether they are or not. And I think the more I do it, the less it's an event, and therefore it is. Mm -hmm. And I think part of being an editor or, or leading anything is to know the difference. I want to talk to you more about editing, but the sure. actual thing I was driving at is something that you do, I think, do alone, which is right. And I heard this interview that you did uh, with Terry Gross uh, a couple of years ago, I guess. And you said this thing that, like, the caricature 
of David Remnick is you can write a 10,000 word story in five minutes standing on one foot. It's just bullshit. But that is just bullshit. And and, and (laughs) that is actually the character that I have too. like that. That is my understanding of how you write those stories. I don't actually understand how you write those stories. It's I don't know how to put this another way. And I'm not saying this as any as as, um, either humble bragging or self-regarding. It's just a matter of fact. It's kind of all I do. The activity writ large, which is to say, <laughs> reading and writing, and, and when business is concerned, some arithmetic. <laughs> um, look, I have a very weird life, right? I do this job. I have three kids. My two older ones are out in the world. One of them is reporting for the Times, and another one is, um, is a photographer. But I also have a younger child at home who's 17, daughter, and who has quite severe autism. That rules your life. That shapes your life. So when I joke around with my colleagues that I don't go camping or go to the beach or this, that, or the other thing because I hate the outdoors or some stupid thing like that, it's a joke. It's not real. It's not true. I, 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 it, it's having a child like that mm-hmm. shapes your life. And now I've always loved writing. I know a lot of writers don't. They hate it. But I do the whole business for me of being able to close a door and try to tell a story or make sense of the world or myself is now a privilege mm-hmm. that I'm, I indulge episodically. You know, when I was a writer for The New Yorker, and I was for five years solely, that was my job. That's what I did every day. I came into the office like an insurance adjuster and, you know, with my bag over, because I... I kind of liked going to the office because when you t- took took a break, you could talk with other smart people rather than raiding the refrigerator. It's also good to like put on pants in the morning, I think. It's something like that. I don't underestimate for a second how hard it is to write well. I don't overestimate for a second the level of my writing. What I love about it is the aloneness of it and the the attempt to make some sense of either a story or myself or the world. And you're failing all the time, all the time. And yet there's something exalted about it. It's like a musician playing. I'm not saying I'm a very good musician. It's just the act of doing it, of concentrating, of not looking at 26 YouTubes, of not doing all the other things that life demands. To do that thing over a period of some hours is, to me, uh, it's a complicated pleasure and very difficult, but um, a deep pleasure. And a lot of the time, most nights, when I'm home in my office in my apartment, I'm not writing. Mm. I'm working on The New Yorker. And the (laughs) the way I do that is I'm sitting in my little office and I read, and a lot of what I read never makes it into the magazine, think, and I take breaks by, you know, picking up guitar for 10 minutes or going on, and this is very embarrassing to admit, but, you know, going on YouTube and some kid from Norway teaches you how to play um, (laughs) the girl from Ipanema or, um, you know, the solo in Whole Lot of Love. (laughs) That's very sad, isn't it? It's okay. (laughs) We've all got our things. I'm kind of happy to hear that, like... uh, you it's what you go do on YouTube occasionally, it, at least. I go on t- YouTube plenty, and and it's what you do instead of smoking. Okay. A lot of writers I know, the way they take a break to concentrate themselves or take a, you know, get their eyes off the page, they smoke a cigarette. But that, you know, I thank God I never saddled myself with that. Yeah, I did that for a long time, and then I realized that you could also just go outside for 10 minutes. Yeah, well, let's not get extreme. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, the other, the other thing I am... It's a deep part of me is I'm a, a, an extreme New York patriot. I, I used to, when I'd go visit my parents in Jersey where I grew up, we're driving back to the city. I used to make my kids sing some patriotic New York song as we drove on the Brooklyn Bridge. I, I, every morning that I get out of bed, and I grew up with very unhealthy parents. It was, you know, one had one still alive with SMS and another with Parkinson's is gone. So health was uncommonly precious. So every morning that I wake up and I'm healthy, 
And then I step out into the street and I'm in New York City. I, I have to say, no matter, and there's, it thrills me. It, it really does. It, it, it's something unbelievably corny about it, but it thrills me. All right. So if writing is your safe space, <laughs> writing is your, like, uh, <laughs> is your David time. Um, that makes some sense to me. But I'm interested in, as the editor of The New Yorker, like when, when you call your own number. That's a good point because I, I, I have to be careful not to step on somebody else's toes. I mean, you could basically get anyone to write about anything, almost. So uh, yeah. I'm interested at the moment where you're like, you know what, we got to do a big Obama profile. Well, remember, Obama was something and someone that I wrote a book about. So it's not as if I'm coming to it cold and therefore I'm stomping on... Ryan Liz or uh, Evan Osnos or Jane Mayer, who, by the way, have plenty of opportunities to write about All right, Obama. We can, we can use Aretha Franklin as an example. No, who the hell wanted to write? No one. <laughs> you know, Aretha Franklin is not exactly at the, you know, zenith of her career. I just felt like it. I watched, you know, her Kennedy Center thing. I grew up listening to Aretha. Started reading about her, and it was thrilling. And, you know, she's a strange cat, but I just wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. And and there was no one, believe me, there was no line to write about Aretha Franklin. <laughs> but, I mean, you're assigning stuff out all the time, right? Look, I only do this twice a year. I only write something of any scale maybe twice a year. Is that like a rule you have with yourself? It's a rule that I, there's just so many hours in the day. That it, look, I can't cheat the New Yorker. I won't cheat the New Yorker. It's a demanding. Not only was it always a demanding job to put out a great print magazine once a week. And there's a lot of pastoral aspects to the job if you're a human being there's there's business parts of it and above all there are editorial parts of it and your colleagues and writers and etc etc it's it's complicated job i'm sure there are many complicated jobs but this is the complicated one that i know but also we're in a moment that's very different from just putting out a print magazine once a week we are in the midst of a revolution a communications revolution, and nothing is guaranteed, and everything is up for grabs. And my job in this historical moment is to get the New Yorker from one era to the next with its soul intact, without cheating it, with keeping it accurate and decent and rigorous and tough on power and itself and at the same time, a vivid presence in every innovative medium that is appropriate for us to be on. That's complicated. I, I have a couple of questions about sure. that. One is, I just want to know how you do it, how you explain that complication. But the other is, how do you do all that stuff? Like you're now hosting a radio show. The radio thing, look, the, we're in a studio here at One World Trade Center, right outside the door are half a dozen radio professionals from WNYC. They know what they're doing. The number of hours I spend on the radio show is, is, is modest. And the amount of time that other people here at the New Yorker spend on it is relatively modest. I think it's important. I think it's exciting. Independent of the um, caveats that might be there for yeah. any of these projects, you are the steward of this mm -hmm. institution. And it is an institution known for the highest quality possible. How do you, as you branch into all of these different mediums, things that the place has not done before, mm. how do you make sure that it all stays excellent? Well, I think if we're being honest with ourselves, the New Yorker was never perfect. It will never be perfect. We'll make mistakes. We'll run pieces that are you know, maybe mediocre or because we, we're doing a lot of things. But the ambition to be true and accurate and decent and above and rigorous and ambitious and all those things has to be there. The real answer to your question is hire and work with people who know what they're doing and have the same level of um, energy and ambition and, and I, I hope daring that, that you want from them. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sitting there line editing every piece. That, that would be a myth. I think William Sean probably did that a, a good deal more, but there were uh, the job is different. But that question doesn't keep you up at night. 
Everything keeps me up at night. <laughs> <laughs> Even when you're practicing The Girl from Ipanema? Yeah, that's, it's, a, it's, it's not a hard song. <laughs> <laughs> well, then help me understand it. Like, what keeps you up at night about, about that transition? It's very simple. It's very simple. So the, the elements, of, when we're talking about quality and, and, and moral and journalistic and artistic, and then there's a business. This is a commercial magazine inside of a company called Condé Nast, which is inside something called Advanced Publications. And I think it's important, not just for me, and, but for the readers, that this thing exists at the highest possible level in 2016 and 2017 and on that there's a continuity to it. And I know, because I'm not entirely stupid, that these institutions, no matter how good they are, all institutions are innately fragile. Innately fragile. That, was, that to me, was the great lesson of the New Republic. Now, I, I, I dearly hope that the New Republic will somehow find a way to get its act together. It won't be exactly the same, even in the best of all circumstances. And it was, wasn't perfect to begin with, as we know. But overnight, overnight, a series of bad decisions were made. And, and at least for, for a period, the New Republic tumbled into the sea. That should heighten your concentration. Mm-hmm. You know, I look at the New Republic and I see, here came a guy with a lot of money, Chris Hughes. And for a period of time, he did the right thing. He somehow seemed to understand what the institution was, what it could be. He put money into it. And all of a sudden, he just got incredibly frustrated that, in fact, it wasn't a commercial magazine. The New Republic was never going to be a commercial magazine and, or not a, not a big deal one. And, and it offended him somehow, and he acted rashly, in my view. And then everybody else walked out the door, and we'll see what happens. I, I, again, I hope for the best. I want to see the ecosystem right. of, of this activity be, even when it's competitive with me, I want to see it healthy. That makes us better. It makes the world better, all the, all the rest. That sounds to me like, and I think this is the story of a lot of media entities that fall off the cliff. Grantland's another example. Mm-hmm. It came down almost to someone's whim, not a mistake. This is called capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> There's only a few ways to be owned in this world. It's either by private ownership or, or government ownership or some you know, institution or foundation. And um, I'm blessed by the fact that the ownership of this magazine, they don't read anything until it's published. No one's putting any pressure on me one way or another politically or or any micromanaging. Yes, they want to see mags be profitable. I totally understand that. That's part of my job. How profitable is The New Yorker? It's a private company, so I'm not going to give you details, <laughs> but it's all over the press. <laughs> it, it's, been, it's been profitable for a good long time, and we're doing, despite all the headwinds, we're doing uh, really well. It's not ever going to be um, Apple. Yeah. But in terms of the terms that it sets out for itself, and considering the time we're in, we're doing, I think, remarkably well. And it's, and it's really for one reason, I think. And it's we are publishing something that readers seem to really want and are willing to pay for it. The world of advertising is changing. There's less of it. Most of it is gobbled up by three or four companies that we all know, Google, Facebook, et cetera, et cetera. So that's not going to be a, a widening pool certainly not in print. And as a result, you could, there's only a couple of ways to make money. <laughs> and we ask, you know, a, a, a subscription price that's not insignificant. And our circulation has, it's even gone up a bit. When you bring up that example of the New Republic, mm. I understand that you're, you don't feel defensive, but you need to be conscious that everything could change tomorrow. Like on some level, are, are you kind of saying like, part of what drives you is that you don't want to be the guy who fucked it up? Well, I certainly don't want to be the last editor of The New Yorker, and I don't, I don't want my successor or my, you know, or, or her um, successor to be um, the last either. But only an idiot who's not paying attention blithely thinks just by willing it so, it's going to happen. Look, look at The New York Times. For all the faults of The New York Times, either historically or present or whatever you want to bitch about, it's the best we have terms of daily and now hourly journalism. It's just, it's, it's superb. And the Republic would be poorer for it. It's loss. 
but I'm mindful of the fact that it's owned by a family which has great values, but no other significant businesses other than the New York Times. Mm-hmm. That's complicated. I would deeply regret seeing them lose the handle on the New York Times. But they're walking a tightwire. And you can't just cut yourself to financial health and still be the New York Times. So they're constantly uh, trying to find their way, seeing what works, seeing what doesn't work. What can we get away with here in terms of personnel? Mm -hmm. It's complicated. You've been doing this job for 18 years. I have. Before you became the editor of The New Yorker, I was never an editor of anything. Except for like your... High school newspaper. High school newspaper. It was awesome. It came out like two or three times a year. (laughs) And it it was called The Smoke Signal because... So embarrassing. It was called The Smoke Signal because I went to a place called Pascack Valley High School and the... I'm afraid the the mascot was the Indian. So Indian Smoke Signal. You know, very regrettable, but it was a long time ago. Hey, I'm going to put things on hold for just a second to tell you a little bit about a couple of sponsors that are making today's show possible. First up, our friends at Audible. And uh, Audible, as you may know, is the leading provider of audio books in the world. They've got more than 250,000 titles that you can choose from. And uh, how's this for a little native advertising? They got all uh, David Remnick's books on Audible. If you go to audible.com slash longform, that's audible.com slash longform, you can start a 30-day free trial, and you can listen to, for free, Lenin's Tomb, Remnick's Ali book, the one he wrote about Barack Obama. All of those books are there. Right now, they're sitting there for you to listen to for free. Thanks to the 30-day free trial you can get at audible.com slash longform. Go check it out. Thanks very much to them for sponsoring the show. And thanks also to Igloo for sponsoring this week's episode. Igloo, uh, put simply, is an intranet not an internet, but an intranet that you'll actually like. What is an intranet? It is a way for your team to talk to each other no matter where you are. You can be working all over the world, and uh, an intranet is a super important way for everyone to talk to each other, and Igloo's a great one. It's, uh, it's designed to keep everyone on the same page. You can share files, you can have real conversations in real time, and you can do it all while being able to use the apps you already use, Google Drive, Skype, Box, whatever. It works with everything, and it brings everything together and creates a single destination that lets you focus on your work with your team. Go check it out, igloosoftware.com slash longform. That's igloosoftware.com slash longform. Thanks to them for sponsoring the show, and let's get back to David Remnick. When you got that job 18 years ago, having only uh, your experience at the smoke signal to fall back on, (laughs) how did you learn how to do this job? That's the right way to put it, is learn how to do it. The first answer is colleagues, that your sympathetic colleagues that I knew well from being a writer. The second answer is I, it was the best diet I ever went on. I lost weight from sheer nerves in the first year. I should try it again. And the other thing is you have to come out, and you're going to make mistakes, and you're going to make bad or mediocre decisions, and then you won't, God willing, make them again. On the other hand, it was thrilling. So I remember very distinctly, I was reading, I think it was Sabbath's Theater. Oh, no, no, it was I Married a Communist, a Philip Roth novel. And we had a piece of fiction in that week that neither the fiction editor nor I was terribly thrilled with. And I said to Bill Buford, why don't we run a chunk of this galley I'm reading of I Married a Communist? And Bill said, well, I'll ask the agent and I'll ask Roth. And they both said yes. And the next week in print, there it was. And I thought, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I can really make some stuff happen that, around here. Exactly. William Sean was the deputy to Harold Ross for years and years and years before he became the editor of The New Yorker. Bob Gottlieb ran a, two big publishing companies before he became the editor of The New Yorker. Tina Brown had edited Tatler and Vanity Fair and had been a, you know, an editor for quite a long time. They kind of knew what they were doing. This was a big jump in a cold ocean. Oh, you had the smoke signal. I had the smoke signal. Where were those nerves manifesting? What was the, the, what was the meeting or the topic or the moment that was the hardest? A number of things. The sheer tonnage of things I didn't know or know how to do 
probably weighed more than this building. But that was not an excuse for long. So, for example, there was a period when the New Yorker was losing money. It just happened to be that period. And I went into a budget meeting, and I had never read a, maybe I had as a reporter, but a profit and loss statement. It's not the most complicated document. And I saw at the bottom a fairly healthy numeral. And I went to ask and to say how great it was that we were making this money. And before I could make this remark, the, the new publisher, David Carey, oh, no. said there's a parenthesis around <laughs> it. And I said, I don't know what that means. Oh, no. So that's how little I knew. I didn't take econ in, in college. I, I, I just didn't. In fact, I, the, I wrote a book called Lenin's Tomb about the collapse of the uh, Soviet Union. Sure. And I got this wonderful... God bless this person. John Lloyd wrote a wonderful review in the New York Times book review. But at the end, he wrote something to the effect of the book ends before economics becomes a big factor here. And it doesn't seem that this is his great strength or something like that. It was the one kind of demurring moment. And he nailed it. He was absolutely right. <laughs> <laughs> no shit about <laughs> economics. But that's no excuse. So I said to David Carey, OK, after this meeting, let's sit in a room and let's go over everything Teach me how to read these statements. T teach me what I need to know. Had you managed people? No. In fact, I, I think I'm the only Moscow correspondent in the history of the Washington Post to not be the bureau chief. So I was never even in charge of one person. <laughs> <laughs> and on, and, that, on and, that front, were you willing to say, can you just stay after with me and teach me how to manage people? One of the bigger mistakes I made in the very beginning was to think, oh, I'll just write my way out of it. Like if I thought we had, I'll write this or I'll write comment or, you know, but that, that was no solution at all. And I was surrounded by people who were, you know, at least as good, if not tremendously better. So the challenge of the player coach. Yes. And the player coach rarely works when the coach is playing too much. <laughs> Remember, being a writer is, a, is a, almost a holy, it's your thing, holy individual thing. It's about me, my my task for the day that's in front of me on the screen or on the paper and pushing the ball forward. That's it. Everything else is a break. Everything else is life outside the... That's, that's your job. When you're an editor, it's about getting the best out of Max. It's about encouraging um, Jane. It's about imagining the whole of an issue as it comes together or should come together both this week and six months from now. It's cajoling. It's encouraging. It, it's making effective cri criticism effective rather than deflating. What part of it is psychiatry? Um, well, I, if I say that, then it's condescending to, to, the, to the writers involved as if they are somehow patients or analysands. I, I don't see it that way. I want to be useful to them. And sometimes being useful is just dropping by and saying what's up mm -hmm. or helping somebody get somebody on the phone or nudging a publicist who is not coming through with, um, you know, actor or director X or Y. Did you know how to do that? No, of course not. But you just, again, it's not brain surgery. You just do it. And then your chair does it for you. In other words, you suddenly have gone from being you know, this person to the editor of the magazine and the editor of the magazine is making that phone call. And then over time, you develop some relationship with the person at the other end of the phone that maybe is useful to the magazine. Not in a kind of illegal, scummy way, but in a useful way. And you're blowing it all the time, by the way. You, you, I, it's 18 years in. It's not like I'm perfect at this. Yesterday, I sent a, a crabby email to a couple of editors who were working on a very complex piece. It was, it was all too frustrated and not prescriptive or encouraging enough to get where the thing should go. It, it, that's does no good at all. Mm -hmm. And the other editor said to me, because I've been only working with her for all, half of forever, she said, you know, it's kind of discouraging to get a note like that because you don't know what to do with it other than to feel bad. She was 100% right. And I apologized and made myself clearer and, uh, you know, trying to work with this, this piece, which I think is going to be terrific. You're learning all the time if you, if you haven't gotten so arrogant and um, self-enclosed that you think you've mastered everything. Before you got up here, we were, we were recording this in your office, and uh, 
you were tied up for a second, so I was sitting here by myself, and people kept coming by and being very nice and and to you, to me, yeah. shooting the shit for a second, and I kept asking them like uh, on a scale of one to ten, like how terrified I should be, and they all said, "Oh no, 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 he's very nice, he's very nice, he's very nice, you're fine, he's very nice," and which is actually I talked to a bunch of people before I came here today, and and that was almost universal. I think there are a couple of ways to lead. You can lead by love or by fear, and in my view. Fear can work, but it always blows up soon. You know, I think Howell Raines was a, a tremendously talented editor in many ways at the New York Times. I think part of the problem there is that when he ran into trouble, the fear turned to resentment and he didn't have, he didn't have allies. It was a very profound thing to watch and dangerous, by the way, for the institution. It was not good. And I, you know, I wish him no ill. I'm just saying that I observed that and it was telling. People were scared of him. I, I, I find that not a useful thing. On the other hand, I know because I have the, not me, the person, but the chair, the position has the, the authority of saying, yes, this is in, no, this is not. That's already, a, you know, not a even-sided relationship. And I know that as a result, I'm disappointing people. I'm disappointing people quite often. I was just in a cartoon meeting, and Bob Mankoff, having already narrowed the sketches down to about 50, I picked, I don't know, 15 or 20. That's going to be a bunch of people who are disappointed, even economically that week. So what am I going to do, lord that over them? Make them even more anxious? That's no place to, no way to be creative. You, people, you want people to be creating and doing their best work in a place of some confidence and appreciation and all the rest. And if you're not fully aware of that, you're not being fully human. Were you able to be fully human from the start? You know, first of all, it's a long time ago, so I don't remember everything about it. I mean... You'd have to ask other people. I am sure that my being a writer cut both ways with some writers. Maybe to some degree it still does. But I can't change that. And I'm, by the way, I'm not the first editor to be a writer. You know, a far better, <laughs> in both respects, you know, H.L. Mencken was a, an editor and a writer and all kinds of people, Cyril Connolly and all manner of people, far superior to me in talent. Um, Look, Bob Silvers at the New York Review of Books is not a writer. He has, until the 50th anniversary of the magazine, a very uh, modest public profile. Uh, same with William Sean. But that's, not, that's just not who I am. And I think that's accepted by now. Are there any downsides to that approach? Yeah, it's t more tiring. In other words, I think if you are, a, you know, um, a son of a bitch, it's exhausting for them. If you stay up late at night worrying who did I miss? Who did I slight? Who did I disappoint? In addition to trying to have a vision of the magazine and the real work, it's exhausting for you. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a downside, I suppose. But I, I think it's a small price to pay. You ask for the job, or at least you have it. And, and um, You didn't ask for it? Well, what happened was in the summer of 1998, Tina Brown, having been the editor for six years, came into a meeting, a small meeting, that I was at, because I did some editorial work, very little. I would read some manuscripts for her, particularly on politics or foreign correspondence. I go to this meeting, and she announces that she's leaving to go to a magazine called Talk, and she's going to be working with Harvey Weinstein, and it's going to be this monthly magazine, and it's also going to do these other things, and Tina's leaving. And I was unhappy. I had a very good and still have a very good relationship with Tina Brown. And she hired me. We work well together. So I was sorry to see her leave. And of course, your first thought 21 and a half seconds later is, uh, who's next? <laughs> and the next day in the New York Post, media gossip, at least in those days, was something more than it is now. seems to have receded a bit. There, there, there was a kind of a horse race. And it said, you know, Graydon Carter, three to one, and Curtie Anderson, three to one, and so-and-so, five-to-one, or whatever it was. And then at the very bottom, it had the names of a couple of writers, and it said, like, you know, the worst horses at Churchill Downs, you know, 50-to-one or 100-to-one, and my name was one of them. And I thought that was funny. 
And I come into the office that day wearing, you know, the crappiest outfit possible because it was hot as hell and I was writing something. I forget what. And I got a call a few hours later from Cy Newhouse, who owns The New Yorker and much else. And in those days, The New Yorker was in a separate building from Condé Nast, and I walked over to Madison Avenue. I went to his office. And we kind of talked in a very oblique way about the future of the magazine, and he asked me some questions about, you know, what I thought. But it was not an overt question about what would you do and are you interested. It was nothing like a job interview, conventional job interview. I went back to the office, went back to work, gossiped about what might happen. Didn't occur to you that it was a job interview? Not in the least. The next morning I came to work, it was now a Friday, and I'm wearing the kind of khakis that you would use to go clamming or <laughs> something or fix a car. Not that I can do either. <laughs> and some other rock and roll t-shirt that had been in my drawer since The Who or something, some, some <laughs> idiot t-shirt like that. And I, again, I get a call, come over to, to Condé Nast and see Mr. Newhouse. I'm thinking, now what? What is going on here? And we have another conversation. Now it's a little bit more explicitly, what do you think? What would you do? Da, 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 da. And it was a rather bulky conversation because he's very quiet and a little awkward. And, and when somebody is that way with me, I therefore over-talk, as people of my heritage are occasionally prone to. And, <laughs> and then almost to get out of the conversation, almost to make it end, I said, well, why don't I write you a memo over the weekend about some ideas? Fine. Write your way out of the problem. Exactly, which is a common, as they say in psychiatry, strategy. And over the weekend, I just banged away at this memo that ended up being like three or 4,000 words. Not a particularly distinguished memo either. It was I, People asked me what was in that. I, I can't, can't remember. It's in the bottom of a drawer somewhere. Completely unbeknownst to me, Sai invited a great editor, a truly great editor who had been wonderful at the New Republic twice and once at Harper's, Michael Kinsley, who was then editing Slate out in the state of Washington. And again, unbeknownst to me, Michael flew to New York, met with Cy Newhouse, and they came to some agreement, but they didn't finish a final agreement. And on Sunday night, Michael was invited to kind of family dinner at a restaurant on the east side. And for whatever reason... By the time Michael Kinsley got back to his hotel room, there was a message on his machine saying that Cy had changed his mind. Sorry to drag you out here, but I'm going to go in a different direction. That night and into the early morning, Kinsley wrote an extensive email explaining what had happened, describing that his emotions about it, he was clearly not happy, and he sent it around to, you know, 200 of his best friends. And I was not one of those people. I woke up on Monday morning, and I get a phone call from a friend of mine saying, well, considering what happened with Kinsley, maybe it might go to you. I'm thinking, well, what are you talking about? But at least I didn't wear the same shitty clothes. <laughs> so I go, and, I, and my hair is, you know, I'm, I, I'm now at the kind of Hebraic version of Sly and the Family Stone haircut, so I decide to get a haircut. And while I'm doing that, I get a phone call from uh, the late Steve Florio, who was in the had a Condé Nast under side. He says, um, come to the office and don't fuck it up. So I did. He offered me the job. I called my wife. I said, what do you think? And I said, yes, and here we are. What was the moment like when you took the elevator down and, like, walked onto the street? I'd be lying if I said I, I remember the emotional texture of it. I... I as I've described, you know, some of the health issues in my family over the years, I've been extremely, it's not me, but my parents, my daughter, you know, that, that's, but in my, in my work life, I've been crazily fortunate. I got a job at the Washington Post right out of college. Uh, I got sent to Moscow in the midst of a revolution, which could not have been a better story. And then this happened. And I didn't know how lucky I was because I didn't, you know, I asked Ben Bradley, the late Ben Bradley, for some advice. And he said, well, just be real lucky in whoever owns the thing. And it turned out I was because it, the amount of editorial freedom was, I think, kind of unprecedented. We've had like 200 people on the show. And my guess is that all of them would basically do whatever you asked. 
Like, I think if you wanted to have dinner with any of them tonight, that could happen. Uh, if you wanted any of them to write something for you, that could probably happen. I think I've had dinner with some of those 200 people. I'm sure you yeah, have. Yeah. I'm sure you have. Or, or happily worked with them. I'm interested in what that power feels like. I'm mindful not to abuse it. I'm aware that it's the chair, it's the, it's the, it's the institution, and it's not me. The second I'm not in that chair, it's something, it's another matter. They want something. And I don't blame them, by the way. I, I felt the same way as a writer. You know, I needed editors. I needed, you know, a p- book publisher. I'm, you know, I, I, I totally get that. And I just am mindful of not abusing that. And I'm also very mindful of uh, the fact that I'm never going to get to everybody. I'm never going to... Ha- William Sean, this is a wonderful thing. William Sean used to carry around in his wallet a card, like a little index card. And it was... When I was a kid, I would make up all-time NBA greatest, you know, starting five and second team. You know, Bill Russell, Magic Johnson, blah, blah, blah. He would do that with issues of ideal issues, platonic ideal issues of The New Yorker. You know, Truman Capote on da, da, da. Kenneth Tynan profile of so-and-so. Um, Jane Kramer, whatever it was. Fantasy baseball for magazines. And every week... Of course, you don't have that. You have something else. You might have something beautiful. You might have something that's a breakthrough. You might have something intellectually exciting. But you, you never have a platonic ideal of anything. There's always a tear in the hem or something. And I know that The New Yorker will always, for whatever reason, not be a, a complete anthology of all that's best in writing at a given moment. In poetry, for example, The New Yorker was wonderful publishing Elizabeth Bishop. It totally missed Wallace Stevens. It was wonderful publishing Updike. I mean, Updike had a home here, Cheever. But missed, I mean, fill in the blank, whoever you love. And it wasn't the same value it is now. It wasn't diverse enough. It wasn't, you could come up with all kinds of faults. So this also keeps your mind active. What am I missing? Who am I overlooking? Are we representative in all the ways that you want to be. Does it feel diverse enough to you now? I don't know that there's like a ding, we hit the diversity, you know, platonic mean, but it's a hell of a lot more diverse now than it, than it was. You know, back in the old days of The New Yorker, there was, at any given moment, maybe one, maybe two African-American writers. Mm-hmm. Jervis Anderson at one point, Jamaica Kincaid was here. This was not something I imagined that was absolutely foremost in the mind of William Shaw. It was a different time. Fairly recently, you know, we've hired Vincent Cunningham, Jelani Cobb, Alexis Acquaya. We have a lot... It's an immense... It's, it's a great deal more diverse. Is it enough? No. Could hire on Gia, too. <laughs> Gia Tolentino's terrific. Okay, so when I was talking to all these people about you before we uh, sat down to do this, uh, nice was a thing that a lot of people said to me. And then this other thing, which connects, I guess, is... I heard all these stories of you sending, like, emails in the middle of the night to people who don't work here saying, I like that piece. I do. Because I do read these things, and (laughs) New York is hardly the only publication I read. And I know as a writer that it's nice to get them. It's nice to hear from somebody who read something of yours with some attention, and why not? How do you think about your role, particularly with young writers who aren't here, like... I mean, the fact that you feel any responsibility to those people I find interesting, but where does that come from? How do you think about that? Well, some of it's selfish. You know, some of it is not without some notion that, you know, maybe this will come to fruition in The New Yorker. Not long ago, uh, I got a phone call from a friend of mine at Columbia and said, you know, there's this guy who spent months on the Turkish-Syrian border hanging out with all kinds of really dangerous people. And I think he has a story. And he's never written anything of great length and penetration. He's just coming out of the journalism school. But you ought to talk to him. And if you say no, you save yourself an hour. If you say yes, maybe even nine times out of ten it might come to nothing. I said yes. This guy comes by. Ben Taub is his name. And he didn't get the story. He didn't nail it the first time. But man, did he have incredible material and incredible determination to get it right. And he cared immensely and 
he just wasn't going to stop until he, he, and he just wrote a fantastic piece about a kid from Brussels who went to Syria, joined ISIS, and then came home. That's the only way it's going to happen. Of course, I can pick up some other magazine and read somebody that already has a reputation and a body of work. It doesn't take a genius to see that, you know, Michael Lewis is a great storyteller or, you know, somebody with an already big rep- reputation is, is there. Okay, that's, that's fine. And, and maybe if you're lucky, you'll, if the time is right, get that person to write for The New Yorker or The Times or wherever it might be. But if you're, if you're not alert to really young people even if you don't quite know what the hell they're talking about when they explain <laughs> the story or the band they're describing to you is something that's not your cup of tea or, or something, if you're not alert to what that person could possibly bring, then you're just sticking with the same old, same old. I was talking to uh, someone you've probably had dinner with who has also been on this podcast yesterday, Wesley Morris. You know, I tried. <laughs> I tried. I, uh, Wesley Morris, a wonderful critic and, and a wonderful writer. And uh, I was telling him I was coming on, to, coming over to talk to you. And he was interested in how you think about your own writing about race. Hmm. And he paid you a compliment, which was that uh, there are very few, maybe uh, even fewer than very few, white writers who write about African Americans in a way that doesn't piss him off. <laughs> well, that if, if that's the case, is that, that how he feels about me, then I'm, I'm very touched and, and pleased. Well, first of all, I think everybody should be able to write about anything. I, I, I'm a little wary of the, although I understand it, the business of so-and-so has no right to write about anything. That would be telling me that a black writer has no right to write about um, Jewish history. Or, On the other hand, I know that I grew up as a white Jewish kid on the East Coast and had certain disadvantages and certain advantages and a certain experience and so on and so forth. And for me to pretend otherwise is gross. No matter how much black music I know, no matter how many African-American authors I've read, your background is what it is. And um, I've written two books that were explicitly about race. A book about Muhammad Ali, which was about the 60s and Muhammad Ali becoming himself and inventing, to some extent, at least in popular culture and in the sports dimension, an alternative to the other ways of being in a public way. And I wrote about Barack Obama. But I'm not, and now you can fill in the blank of any number of people, I haven't devoted my whole life to this subject. But I also know that race is, in American history, the, in a way, the subject. It's, it's a large part of what defines our history, our pain, who we are now. I mean, it's not just written in the history books. It's written in, in this morning's headlines. You and I are talking a week after uh, Minnesota and uh, Baton Rouge and, and Dallas. And in a moment when a candidate who has a good shot of winning the presidency is running a campaign of blatant racism and xenophobia and much else, and, and this is, comes right after first African-American president. So this, this is... <laughs> How could it not be central to somebody's concerns who's awake or woke? (laughs) (laughs) What do you want the magazine to do in that moment? It's a great question, and I think about this all the time. And so Henry Finder has been editing a series of anthologies uh, of The New Yorker in three different decades. The 40s, the 50s, and now he's just finished the 60s. And it's very instructive for me and him and others in that it shows you how in real time you can get something and how in real time you can miss something. For example, the New New Yorker in the 60s did not have a profile of the Beatles. (laughs) In the 50s, it did not have a profile of Elvis Presley. It had an Elvis piece, but not, not a great classic piece. 
to say nothing of Little Richard, Chuck Berry, Fats Domino, Etta James, you know, take your pick. I'm just sticking with music for a second. It was way stronger in the 60s on jazz than it was on rock and roll. Why? Because somebody had the good sense to hire Whitney Balliot. But it wasn't until later that Ellen Willis came along and, and, and so on. She came at the very, very end of the 60s. And so if one of your goals is to have a magazine that it's in some sense is a record of its time and temper and texture and emotions and history and all the rest, you got to have the troops to do it with divergent interests to do it and they got to be aware and also not to ignore the obvious. Sometimes we, we can be so interested when we pick our stories in being highly original in our story selection that we kind of overlook the fact that, oh my God, we forgot to do John Lennon <laughs> or Paul McCartney or whereas H- Nat Hentoff in 1963 or four, I forget what it was, did a brilliant profile of, you know, Bob, Bob Dylan. Mm-hmm. Part of the job, I think, of The New Yorker is to get to what's essential. And you, you see, for example, in the, in the civil rights writing of the 60s, there's really good stuff there, largely thanks to one Calvin Trillin and Renata Adler to some degree and a little bit to Charlene Hunter-Colt, but, you know, and above all, the great piece, but only one, James Baldwin, who wrote a piece for all time that ended up being The Fire Next Time. That was published in The New Yorker Whole. And to remember that that's possible, Mm -hmm. to remember that what The New Yorker affords is is ambition and and the highest bar possible is, is... both thrilling and daunting. Do you think you've met it yet? Sometimes. Where? Well, for example, look at look at the post nine eleven reporting of Lawrence Wright in the New Yorker, that that really added up to his book, The Looming Tower. I, I I'm extremely proud of it and him. Look at the accumulation of profiles and critical pieces about. Race and Gender by Hilton Alls. Look at the accumulating chronicle of contemporary television by a critic like Emily Nussbaum. Um, or the historical writing that goes on by Jill Lepore. Once I start accumulating a list, then I'm favoring one over the other, and I, I'm mindful of that. Do you want The New Yorker to avoid the hot take syndrome? I think there's great value in stepping forward on a given day and calling someone's bullshit or coming forward with a, an assemblage of facts that puts pressure on power. Yeah, I think there is a... By the way, I, I do have a metabolism. I do come from daily journalism, so I can, I could, I'd be a hypocrite if I said that um, there was no value in that. I think we, we practice it, and it can be dismissed as hot takes, and there's a certain kind of hot take that's an unbelievable cliche at this moment. You know, album X comes out from, you know, Kanye or whoever it is, and everybody has their call on it, and okay. And some good work can come out of that. By the way, Wesley Morris is somebody who's perfectly capable of that. But for a publication like ours, I want to really be sure that when I'm dead and somebody is um, assembling a, an anthology of the 2010s or whatever whatever we're calling this decade that we wrote for not just the moment, but for what Muhammad Ali used to say, all time. <laughs> You've talked a lot about, uh, about the chair and about the responsibility and authority and joy and power that the chair bestows on whoever's sitting in it. And by the way, it's the editor of a magazine. This is not like Secretary of State. Let's let's not over let's not overdo it. You can say that. Does it genuinely not feel that way to you? No. No, I look I feel very responsible the sta- the to the stakes place. The stakes aren't high? The stakes are high, but but they're I, I just some sense of proportion is probably not. Well this is the long form podcast. So okay. <laughs> On the on the long form podcast, your Secretary of State. Fair enough. If you can get all these people to say yes, by the way, I can always. Well, that's what I wanted to know. I can always. When do you hear no? Who tells you no? Well, look, there are writers at other places who I think are terrific. 
I'm not, I'm not going to make any secret about it. I think Ta-Nehisi Coates is, is, is a friend of mine, but, and it's, I'd much rather see Between the World and Me published in The New Yorker rather than another publication that shall not speak its name. I think Wesley Morris is a wonderful writer, and I could name any number. I, look, it's, I'm thrilled that some of these other, a lot of these other publications are, are as good as they are, either all the time or sometimes. Or I, again, it's the cost of being repetitive. I don't want to be the only tree in the forest. I want a forest. How often do you hear no? I hear no more often from writers who are part of our circle that are doing something else or a certain idea doesn't appeal to them. Um, I might go to, you know, Zadie Smith and say, Zadie, what about doing an essay on X? And even though she, it might go to no, I think I have some idea that writers like to be appealed to and it might plant the seed for yes, either for that down the line or something else. Clearly, Bob Silver's who's running, a, you know, by scale, a smaller operation, simply by working as hard as he does, by making as many phone calls as he does, by seeing as many writers as he does, hits way above, in terms of the quality of the thing, what, what you would think because of the, just the scale of the circulation or the, or, or the economics of it. I think writers like to write for Bob Silvers and the, and the New York Review of Books, partly because of the audience it brings and partly because of his sheer energies as, a, as an editor. Same thing with Barbara Epstein, who was his partner as an editor and I worked for and wrote for before she died. Another chair question. Yeah. How long do you think you can sit in the chair for? <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. Aging in all respects of life is, is a profound and tricky question and people are not always the best judge of the diminishment of their talents as they get older. It's, it's a very hard thing to, you know, stand back from yourself and see, you know, it's easy for athletes. I mean, it's cruel, but it's easy for athletes. An athlete who was averaging 20 points in, uh, in a basketball team suddenly is averaging five points. This is just irrefutable. They've lost the step. Their shot is not as good, etc. But this is not that. Um, I think I'm a fair distance from that. Um, those kinds of reckonings. Um, I mean, what's charitable, charitably called middle age. Well, you got that job young. 39. I just don't know. But I, I, look, I, I do think, to be perfectly honest, um, as much as I admire, really, I deeply admire uh, William Sean, the late stage is the inability to come to a reckoning about succession as he got old was... A profound drama, and that's something I'd want to even remotely repeat. So it's somewhere between, like, term limits and a monarchy. Well, since I drink pomegranate juice and go to the gym, I <laughs> could go to 200. Who knows? <laughs> that's the plan. <laughs> yeah. Whenever it is that... Um, you seem really nervous to ask this. You shouldn't. No, I'm trying to... Do, I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to put it in the right way. I mean, I, I'm trying to be as thoughtful as you have been. Uh, I'm trying to figure out what I really want to ask. Max, ask what you want to ask. I'm just trying, I'm honestly trying to figure yeah. it out. Well, I think my question is, once you do decide that it's time to go, what do you want to do next? Depends when that is. I, I hope I'm healthy. I hope I'll be writing in some form or another until I drop dead. Maybe. Finish Proust. <laughs> I don't think it will be an opportune time to pursue my career as, 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 a, as a model or um, a second baseman for the Yankees. I think what I'm, maybe I'm trying to ask is, like, after you're the editor of The New Yorker, what the hell do you do? Well, look at Bob Gottlieb. Bob Gottlieb was the editor of The New Yorker. Now he writes. Not for 18 years. No, no, but he started a good deal later than I did. He had had a long career in publishing. Bob Gottlieb left The New Yorker. He writes both for us and even more consistently for the New York Review of Books. He's got a memoir coming out. He still edits books. I think he's hoping like hell that Robert Caro will give him his last uh, um, volume of the LBJ biography, and I'll edit that. He has a very active life. Tina Brown writes. She edited Daily Beast. I, you know, she's running. I, I, Maybe what I'm trying to ask is, yeah, 
I think what you're trying to ask is, do I need to have some other thing where I'm the boss or have uh, some sense of power? No. Do you think about life with life outside the chair? I'd be lying to you if I, if I didn't. And it's a mixed bag, too, because here's the thing. I haven't said this because you haven't asked. I love this activity. I love this activity. When something is handed in that's good or great, thrilling it it's just i'm so grateful and i you know <laughs> and ironically the stuff that makes the magazine the best is the things that have the least to do with the editor which is to say the grateful reception of brilliant work the key thing is creating the environment so that that happens thanks david thank you max Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Jenna Weiss-Berman. Our intern this week, Courtney Harrell. Thanks to our sponsors, MailChimp, Audible, Igloo, and the folks over at Every Library. They are working to save your local library. Go give them some help. Go to everylibrary.org. Give them a couple of bucks. Sign a pledge. Do what you need to do to keep your local library intact. And thanks, of course, to David Remnick. We'll see you next week. Get me running, and you know I'll be Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Want to get a little more from every sip? Smartwater Alkaline doesn't just taste crisp and pure. It's loaded with everything you need to perform at your best, whether you're running marathons or boardroom meetings. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smartwater Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com.